My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome to the post-credit pod. Now, usually I say it's an exciting week for this and that, but I, it is, it is. But right now, I'm actually going to turn our attention very briefly to next week, which is kind of the first time I've done that. But it's because we here are very excited. We will be delivering a Zack Snyder interview next week. We got to talk to him about Army of the Dead, dig into the actual filmmaking process and what it was like to return to the zombie genre that helped launch his career. We talked a ton about the Man of, Man of Steel, which as everyone who listens to this show knows, is one of Eric's favorite movies of all time. So he geeked out and it was well, great to, to such say. an extent that I have turned you around on it a little bit. I, I went from like a B minus to like closer to a B plus uh, through okay. the course I'm of the podcast. I'm still taking credit. I'm still yeah, taking no, credit. Yeah, no, as you should, as you should. <laughs> but it wasn't like I hated it and then I came around, right, you know? Right, right. Uh, and then, you know, that, that was really cool. We kind of got to hear a lot about what his plans were for future sequels and storylines. And then we got some great Batman stuff, both literal and ideological. This is seriously where Eric Italiano shines, guys. Like, <laughs> I have never seen him this animated in a conversation as he Are was talking to Zack Snyder about Batman. Do you, it, was, it was your A-game. Do you mean that? That's yeah. nice of you. Yeah, no, it was great, dude. It, it, I was like sitting back and just enjoying the conversation as a fan because uh, I got yeah, to see you guys exciting. go back and forth. You know, what's funny is that while I've seen you this week, this is the first time that we're back with the post-credit pod faithful in two weeks because uh, we haven't spoke to them since the end of, um, what is that, Falcon and... Wow. Was that already so long ago? Soldier, yeah, it's been two weeks. So what a way for us to come back. We had been tracking this one pretty much since Netflix released the trailer for Army of the Dead, I don't know, two, three months ago. And it worked out. We got him for close to 30 minutes. So we're really psyched to share that with y'all. Zach was super cool. He he, was. he he seems like such a genuine guy, which, you know, everyone that we've talked to so far, I feel like has been pretty cool and do well to uh, dispel the myth about actors and famous people and stuff like that. But I feel like Zach's enthusiasm for his work is unique. And let's be real. If someone was a dick in one of these interviews, we would blast them on this pod. We'd be like, yeah, right, this exactly. person was terrible. Yeah. Exactly. So keep an eye out for that. It is releasing on May 14th, which is also the day that Army of the Dead hits theaters before hitting Netflix on the 21st. But of course, we wouldn't leave you high and dry with non-demand content right now. Eric also did a great interview with Josh Duhamel, who is the star of Jupiter's Legacy. Some very cool stuff that you'll get to at the end of this episode. So definitely stay tuned or fast forward if you just want that. But you're going to miss out on good conversation. Because now we're going to move into our news before hitting on the Bad Batch. Second episode drops this Friday. And phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. After Marvel released that huge hype video, we had to break down the nooks and crannies of everything that's going on. Because holy shit, it is going down. We finally got a look at Eternals. Our We've prayers only, have been answered. <laughs> we started this podcast in August, and I think literally in one of our first like three episodes, we said like, man, I really want some Eternals promotional <laughs> material. Yeah. So we've been on that bandwagon for a while. Yeah, for sure. But to start off, uh, earlier this week, it was reported by The Hollywood Reporter. DC is searching for a Black director, and they seemingly confirmed the initial rumors that this will be, from Warner Brothers, a Black Superman movie. Presumably, according to the article, Black kal So not Calvin or, or, or Valzad, in, which, which are Black Superman in the comics. 
Now, this has caused a little bit of problem. This is, um, I heard, I saw some people asking for, like, saying, why would you just race bend when there is a black Superman out there that you could use? I'm actually all for this, as I've said a few times on this podcast. I think adding the racial component to the Kal El story makes it more compelling. It's only called Smallville, you know, like it is supposed to be the perfect depiction of middle America. So I think this is one of the few cases where race spending is not just for the sake of trying to be woke. I actually think it adds a layer to the story that is both needed and something that we haven't seen yet. Here's what I'll say. I agree. I think Clark Kent slash Superman is is my favorite. I don't know a ton about the other guys, but I but ever since this report first cropped up, I think it was like a month and a half ago where it was reported that they're it doing like it. It was like February yeah, where it came out like that, that uh, Tennessee Coates was going to write it. So it's yeah. been it's been in the he. I mean, he's probably been hard at work for two months now at this point. So since then, I have brushed up on the other black Superman that exist. And, and I, again, I, I need more of a crash course, of course. But at this point, I still think Clark Kent and, and Kal-El are my favorite. So I am excited about this. Having said that, I have seen a ton of black critics and entertainment media members point out like, hey, when there is interesting, compelling, dynamic characters already in place, why not just tackle those and start over? Why? But don't you think that unfairly ignores the fact, like the same way that sports fans will get butthurt about their favorite player being like, I don't really bleed green and white. You know, to me, it's a job. It's a business. And that could be applied here. Like, yes, that's a valid point to make, but is it inconsiderate of the fact that at the same time, they're trying to make money and the audience familiarity with Clark Kent is worth potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. Listen, I agree with that. Ultimately, my point, because I am excited to see a black Clark Kent, my point is that as two white critics, I guess you and I are not in a position to really have the definitive say on whether or not this is pandering or not. And I think that has to be up to the cultures that are being represented. So I I do want to hear more from that side because I'm only talking about tweets. I want to see some deep dive articles from some really, you know, uh, uh, talented writers that I'm sure are probably in the works about this subject. I want to educate myself a bit more on that opposing standpoint. But I'm excited for Black Super. Agree, yeah. Agreed. And that's why I'm saying, I don't really care which route they go. You know, they could do Valzad, they could do Clark Kent. I, I think it's cool regardless. Agreed. I'm just saying when you put on your- And I love Clark Kent. That's my when favorite. You, when you put in, when you put on your realism hat, you have to understand that Warner Bros. already, right or wrong, dated thinking or, or not, Warner Bros. already thinks, I could promise you this, that they're taking a risk with a black Superman in it of itself. I don't think they want to compound that risk by having that character be a character that most fans, I mean, I only heard of Val Zod within the last two months and I'm a huge comic book guy. So I don't think they want to double down on that quote unquote risk. I do think, I do think that a black Clark Kent film, if done right, would be a bigger hit than Man of Steel was both in terms of critics, fans and dollars. I think dollars for sure. Uh, Within that Hollywood Reporter article, they mentioned six directors that are apparently being considered. I actually then wrote for Observer a kind of, you know, not a retrospective, but I look back at each of their track records to kind of pick up themes 
and uh, motifs that might fit and connect to a Man of Steel movie. Uh, those names were Barry Jenkins, Ryan Coogler, Stephen Capel Jr., J.D. Dillard, Regina King, and Shaka King. All very talented directors for me. Personally, now that's their top- list or yours? No, that, that was the Hollywood Reporter's uh, reported list of directors being considered. And interestingly, they said Marvel's also looking for a Black director for Blade. So there's been an added layer of competition because there's a lot of overlap, according to THR. Uh, of those directors, Barry Jenkins is my top choice. I think you can't go wrong with really any of them because they all have uh, some really solid track records. But Barry Jenkins is my number one. Barry Jenkins strikes me as such a delicate, intimate filmmaker, though. Do you really think that translates to this sort of story? Absolutely. I think he focuses on the interiority of his characters. He is unbelievable at boiling down his characters to the most definitive moments of their lives in both Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. And I think if you are going to carry over some key elements from Clark Kent's backstory, you're going to need someone who can establish the emotionality and the potency of those moments. I think he does that. I also think from a film, uh, an actual aesthetic filmmaking standpoint, he would bring something visually to the, uh, the blockbuster genre that is very much unique in terms of a, a much more sincere focus on internal character drama and not just, you know, wide angle blasting battles but he's unlikely because he's also doing the lion king prequel for disney so i want to put that out there it is doubtful that he would have schedule time he is certainly the most exciting cachet name here right my choice is shaka king um i have been high on judas as soon as i saw it and the reason i think shaka king's work there translates to man of steel is because judas was about a larger than life human to almost the extent that he was a myth right and yes it helps that daniel kalua put forth a literally academy award worthy turn but that film was framed and shot and written and created every time that character was on screen you held your breath you were like you know what i mean i need to hear what he says i i need to see what he does so the ability to take a larger than life character right and bring him into frame, both the frame of the screen and the frame of your mind, if that makes sense. Yeah. And have you feel like you're eye to eye with them in the room is a difficult thing to pull off. So I think that that skill of his would translate well. I also found of the directors on this list, and to be fair, I haven't seen One Night in Miami yet, so I can't speak to Gina King, but of all filmmakers of this list, Judas is the most intense visceral of these directed films on this list so combining those two traits that's why he would be my pick two reasons why i also wouldn't mind shock king while i'd be on board number one judas and the black messiah really is all about also society forcing individuals into specific roles and when you put clark kent into that position you suddenly are stumbling on like a bit of what man of steel tried to tackle, you know, like, do I want to be a hero? Do I owe the world anything? What is my role? And, and what does society expect from me? And do I have to play that? So I think that's interesting. And number two, Judas and the Black Messiah has a very palpable undercurrent of rage and simmering anger based on this, you know, racial lens. So refocusing that on a Black Clark Kent who's growing up in rural Kansas, who the society has to reckon with, you know, because of course, look, we took Jesus Christ, who is most likely 
a Middle Eastern looking dude in real life. And we made him like a white, dirty, blonde haired guy, you know, so Donor, like Cali bro. <laughs> yeah. And so, so society is going to have to reckon with like, well, our, our messianic figure is not, you know, what our racist ass culture wanted or, or predicted. So I think those two elements from Judas and the Black Messiah and Shaka King would also translate for sure. But I think a lot of these people on this list, I'd be very fine with. Uh, next, HBO has released the first look images at House of the Dragon, which is the Targaryen centric prequel to Game of Thrones. It's set about 260 to 300 years before the events of the main show. It's based on George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood novel. It tells the story of House Dakar Targaryen and will presumably build to the Dance of Dragons, which was the epic civil war that essentially was the first domino to fall in the Targaryen regime's decline. So it's very interesting. It was created by Ryan Condal, who cut his teeth on Colony, which was a solid show. And Miguel Sapochnik, who I know I'm butchering that. I Miguel Sapochnik. Sapochnik, that makes way more sense and sounds <laughs> completely more accurate. He is the director who worked on a ton of blockbuster episodes of Black Butter. Battle of the Bastard. Yeah, including this guy with yeah. bangers only, yeah. If there's anybody who knows Game of Thrones, it's, it's that guy. So that showrunner duo, to me, pretty damn solid. We also got an official release of these character descriptions. I do want to toot my own horn a little bit. I actually scooped most of these and, and a little bit more that wasn't released yet back in December. You can check that out. So Emma Darcy will be playing Princess Reyna Targaryen and Matt Smith will be playing Princess Daemon Targaryen. Reyna is the King Viserys's firstborn child. She is of pure Valyrian blood. She's a dragon rider. She uh, was. She's not a man but she is Viserys's chosen heir publicly. So she is living her whole life expecting to be the first female ruler of Westeros. And that obviously doesn't sit well. Uh, with a lot of people. Yeah, I was going to say that may have something to do with the fierce civil war that breaks out. Oh, oh yes, you think? <laughs> uh, Matt Smith, Daemon Targaryen. He's the younger brother to King Viserys. King Viserys is known as like in, in the Game of Thrones history as like a very kindly man who was warm and like genuinely just wanted to do the right thing. Now, have you, have you crossed these characters and stories in the books have you read about this shit yourself uh, so i've done a ton of research because i love reading like the game no of i mean movie. like because you've read the thrones yeah, book in the novels proper a lot of these characters do get name dropped but it's not like you know that this is hundreds of years before so it's not like we're getting like pov chapters or anything Right, but a lot, right. a lot of them get name dropped. And anyone who's interested in Game of Thrones history and theorization, check out Alt Shift X on YouTube. Best YouTuber in the game, any genre, I don't care. But uh, Princess Damon Targaryen, Matt Smith, kind of a dick. Really, really good warrior. Really good dragon rider. Can occasionally be honorable and noble, but also definitely has a temper and has like that 50-50 like I might be fucking nuts which I like. Uh, Olivia Cook as Alicent Hightower. And Who Rick I love. I am ready actors. for this chick's moment. She went, I mean, this is not that I found her, but the first time that I saw her- You was discovered her. You're her agent. Was, it, was in a tiny film by a guy named Steven Spielberg called Ready Player One. No, I'm lying. I'm lying. I did discover her. She is in Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Yeah, she's, she's fucking great. excellent in that. She's also and good then, in Bates Motel. And then she was in Bates and she was, she starred in Spielberg's film. And now she was Sound in of Sound Metal. of Metal. And now she's got this. I'm a huge fan. So I'm, I'm definitely here for this. Good actress. So she plays Allison Hightower and Reese Iffins. I'm definitely butchering that one. Otto Hightower. 
Alicent is the daughter of Hightower, who is the hand of the king when this takes place. And she is the most comely woman in the Seven Kingdoms, according to HBO. She was raised in the Red Keep, close to the king in his innermost circle. She possesses both a courtly grace and a keen political acumen. So from what I know from my own research, she's a player. She is you know, imagine like a, a, like a power sister. player or yeah. a sex player. Like no, she's, no, no, oh, no, 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 she's making player. moves. Okay. Imagine a smart Cersei. Like I love Cersei, great character, but not capable at all. All of her or a bad. Cersei who doesn't let her emotions overcome. Definitely, her she's much more controlled, much, much more focused, and and sharply manipulative. I really Very like cool. her character. Otto Hightower is the hand of the king. He's loyal, he's faithful, he wants to do right, uh, you know, by the realm. And he thinks the king, the, the greatest threat to the, the king is Daemon, Matt Smith. So there's some tension right there between like the king's best friend and the king's little brother. Uh, Steve Toussaint is playing Lord Corliss Valerian, the sea snake, who interestingly is also reportedly getting his own spinoff already, though it's not clear at what point in his life the sea snake will be uh, the Sea Snake spinoff will take place, but he is Lord of House uh, Valerian. He's Valerian bloodline as as old as House Targaryen. He's the most famed nautical adventurer in the history of Red uh, Westeros. He built his house into a powerful seat that is even richer than the Lannisters at the time this takes place. I and claims the largest navy in the world. I fucking like this guy. That's the coolest one you've said so far. He, he, no wonder he, he's got a he's he's got his own show coming. Dude, he is the man. And like cool is actually a very appropriate word because this guy, the way like the, the Wikipedia's describe him and the way other characters have talked about him is literally cool. They're like, he's like the, the guy who like, I want his rookie card, bro. That's right. exactly his vibe. Right, right. right. Y'all know my shtick about Thrones, right? I am just as upset about the way that things went down towards the end as y'all. But as I've always said, like that would be like, Continuing to be mad at Game of Thrones is like judging the life of an 80-year-old man based on what he did from when he was 65 to 80. His best years were obviously when he was 20, <laughs> 30, 40. So remembering that, and if, look, great cast, great cast. they're spending, I'm sure, a fuckload of money. So I am going to remain excited, and we are going to, when this show comes out, cover the fuck out of it. And I'm willing to bet that all these people talking all that shit now are going to tune in that first weekend 100%. Hopefully they send out screeners for this bad boy because once Thrones became a phenomenon, they stopped sending out screeners, you know, regardless of how high up you were wow. in the critic world. That's you know, a no flex. One, That's yeah, a fucking no one, flex. It's similar how Mando didn't get any screeners. So I, I'm really hoping. Well, Disney does that as a rule of thumb. I think they only send out the first one or two. You're telling me that last fall you didn't get anything for no, Mando? No, nobody got screeners for, for Mando. They they announced in a press email that they were not setting out screeners. Wow, that's yeah, that's a flex. So like only like the the, the top of the top get it. For a spin-off, I'm probably expecting them. They're like, listen, people are unsure. The ending was wobbly. I think we need to build some confidence. We need to send out some screeners, get some good buzz going. That's what I think for is sure, going to happen. For sure. for sure. Well, HBO, you know where to find us. <laughs> exactly. And you know we're already on like a positive outlook. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I've been straight simping so far <laughs> for the show. <laughs> just because, right. just because, 
And let me just say, while I agree with the sort of cancel culture vibe around this, like I agree with it on principle, like they have a point, but the way in which it's just become trendy to hate thrones, fuck thrones for thrones sake, I can't abide by that. If you have a legitimate criticism, which most people do, oh, the final season sucked, but just to hate it because that's the trend really bothers me. So I'm trying to buck the trend and be like, look, I get that we're all pissed off, but at the end of a relationship, it's important to look back on the good times. And that's what I'm doing here. Yeah. I mean, season six through eight does not erase seasons one through five for me. And six. And I, dude, six is the one where she serves. He blows up the fucking, uh, the green thing. I mean, that's an amazing season of TV. Every single season has its moments, even the last season. I just think you you see the decline start probably in season yeah, six. Yeah. But yeah, her blowing up the sept was one of the best episodes of television, you know, in recent memory. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our quick hitters. Marvel's Blade has delayed production until July 2022, but it's not because anything's gone wrong. They just want to give more time to flesh out the script and everything. That's usually a good thing. Uh, Kevin Feige has revealed that Doctor Strange cameo was cut from WandaVision's finale. I mean, anyone who listens to our podcast knows that that was a big sticking point yeah, for us. thanks, Kevin. Fucking dickhead. <laughs> John David Washington will star in Gareth Edwards' new original sci-fi film, True Love. Very cool. Guys, continuing his upward trajectory. Standing uh, ovation. <laughs> Standing ovation. Our boy, Gareth Edwards, back from the fucking depths. Not only is he following up Rogue One, not only is it a sci-fi. Ah, it's been a while. Not only does it star JD Dub, but it's called True Love. I mean, this guy, this guy knows knows the way to my heart, man. <laughs> That'll be like your white whale interview. Eventually, you're gonna land him, dude. White whales. <laughs> you know, you know what I thought about this week. You know, not to toot our own horns, but to do so. Not toot real away, quick. bro. For a podcast that's only been around it for I don't know six to eight months, like the quality of guests that we've gotten is pretty high, and. I was posting about Zach this week and I was like, one of these days we're going to be dropping like coming next week, Brad Pitt or something just truly, truly insane. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Right. So, you know, so it's just Gareth Edwards. I love, but where I'm, where I see us going, he, there are bigger white whales than him. (laughs) I'm picking up what you're putting down my man, for sure. Adrian Brody has joined Succession Season 3 as a rival billionaire activist. Like, hey, guys, how do we follow up a flawless season of television? Like, I don't know, cast a bunch of talented people in guest roles. Like, nailed it. Awesome. Fucking cast, can't wait. Cast the dude who became the youngest actor of all time to win Best Actor. No big deal. How old deal. is he? 29. Damn. Timmy Chalamet almost had it. Almost. Yeah. Not for Gary fun, fun fact, though. That was close to 20 fucking years ago. So. That's crazy. <laughs> Uh, Glenn Close has said she wants to play Cruella DeVille again and also has a story in mind. Like, I am not opposed to Emma Stone having, like, the, the younger years in concurrence with an uh, older Glenn Close return. Like, anytime Glenn, Glenn Close, Close wants to come back, I'm in. Glenn Close needs to focus on getting that Academy Award. Poor woman has been up for it. I don't know, North, like seven, nine, eight, ten times? A lot. Eight and nominations. I think she should have won for the wife over Olivia Coleman, who I loved in the favorite. I'm not saying she was yeah. bad. I just think she and won for the wife. Cruella, we're gonna be involved in the press there as well. So keep y'all eye out for that. 
Uh, Blake Lively was starring Diablo Cody's Lady Killer for Netflix. Great to see Diablo Cody, who did uh, Juno and a ton of other really great scripts. Just great to see her back in the game. You know, I'm excited for this. Director, writer? Uh, She's usually a writer. I think she's previously directed. I don't know if she's directing this one. I didn't jot that down. Fucking sweet name. I'll give her that. Yeah, super, super sweet name. All right, let's move on to some Twitter questions. Then we'll get into Star Wars, The Bad Batch, and Marvel Phase 4, and our Josh Duhamel interview. At Sammy Rob 18 we got any PCP merch for sale somewhere in the future or like a run of koozies or something? I'd buy like 10 of them. That's awesome. Well, Sam, we will we will reassess as was answered to you on Twitter and uh, we'll get back to you on that. That, that yeah, would be a once, fun thing to do. Once we hit the one year mark in August, we'll take scope of the whole shebang. Yeah. As it were. At, at the real KVD, what are you most excited for in Marvel Phase 4? And who do you think the next big bad will be? When will they show up? We'll get to that in our discussion today. Well, I think, and we reported on this kind of, because we ran it as a rumor, not an official word. A, but... a confident rumor, though. Well, then let's fucking report it, dude. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have the, the, the necessary confirmation, but I, uh, I'm confident. That we think it's going to be Kang. Now, do I think he's going to be a... Thanos level bad? No, but do I think he's going to be a multi-film, multi-hero bad guy? Yes. I don't when even know he might be a bad guy because they have, they said in the initial report he, it's going to be, be a both. new version. I, yeah, I think both. I think he's absolutely going to be straddling the line a bit, and I think I think they're going to do something really re- refreshing and cool. That's not just Kang the Conqueror. He wants to fuck shit up. Now we already know, confirmed by them, that he is going to appear in ant-man and the wasp quantumania but as reported rumored whatever by postcard pod we think if not the character himself the concept of kang is going to be introduced in about a month's time with the release of loki i also think uh we're probably at some point maybe fantastic four gonna get some Dr. Doomage. We're going to get some Galactus oh, I'll, stuff. You I'll know, get the Doom today, baby. Don't you worry. Yeah, we're, we're going to get some good stuff. All right, let's move into Star Wars and The Bad Batch. It premiered last week. Second episode is going to be this Friday. We're recording this Thursday uh, evening. For any of you that don't know, The Bad Batch follows the elite and experimental clones of The Bad Batch, which were first introduced in The Clone Wars. Uh, as they find their way in a rapidly changing galaxy in the immediate aftermath of the Clone War. Now, members of the Bad Batch, which is within that, a unique squad of clones who vary genetically from their brothers in the clone army. They each possess a singular exceptional skill that makes them extraordinarily effective soldiers and a formidable crew. And they are also not susceptible to that same execute order 66 you know, inhibitor chip that's in the other clones. So they're still good guys as all of their other brothers are fucking shit up and following the Emperor. Uh, The Bad Batch takes place very shortly after Revenge of the Sith. And Eric, I want to start with your positives because even though I like the show, I'm Do you have none? Because I think- No, no, of of course I do. But I think I want to give them a full 24. uh, I want to give them a full 360 view. And I think your positives mixed with my negatives do that. So I don't know if it's because of my ADD or (laughs) childish is not the right word, but I I feel at times Clone Wars does very much feel like a children's cartoon. Skews younger sometimes, for sure. Especially early on. Very fair. 
I don't know if it's in the structure in which the episodes are laid out. Like they're like two, three episode arcs and then they'll swing you over to something new entirely or the way that it doesn't always follow the A-list heroes, but I would never really been able to sink my teeth into Clone Wars the way that I would like to. Trust me, I would love to love this show, but I've like passively watched, I don't know, three and a half seasons, four seasons without ever really like locking in, right? Like this is an ongoing conversation between me and you. I'm like, oh man, you got to get to the, these parts and that part. I know, so. I know. And trust me, like, you know, there's a part of me where I hear how good the final season is. And I know Real enough good. about the Star Wars world now at this point where I don't ne- necessarily need Clone Wars knowledge. I just need Star Wars knowledge. You could also just fast forward to that seventh season now that you have a little bit of a Clone Wars base. Right, exactly. So I think that's the strength of bad batch right there that you could consume it if you're a hardcore clone wars fan or if you're like me and more of a casual uh do i want to pick this up let's go see so i think that's a strength right they are able to loop in star wars fans of every shape and size i was half expecting to hear a crash after city living baby city living (laughs) all right so what do I like about it specifically, though, beyond the fact that I find that I could engage with it despite not having the knowledge that most Star Wars fans do? I like the Magnificent Seven Western vibes, both in terms of thematics, a team of misfits, each bringing a unique skill set to the table, and the literal. There is literally a Mexican standoff <laughs> between hunter and crosshair in the awesome pilot so you know the same reason that people like the western vibes of mando sort of getting that here as i asked the bad batch creators during the press conference for the show this and you guys can check that out on brobible.com please do please do and i did put out a few tweets uh it reminds me i mean the pilot specifically reminded me of rogue one because it's not and not yet at least it could one day be that but it's not a story about mythic jedi and sith who could literally move things and people with their minds it's about real soldiers making tough choices in the heat of battle against the backdrop of a rapidly changing galaxy and it's in these moments rogue one and bad batch that i feel like star wars finally feels exactly what it's supposed to be a war uh and to that point the character dynamics of the Bad Batch and the decisions that they're forced to make are fascinating, right? Because it's more nuanced than, well, the Sith are evil as fuck, so I'm definitely not with them. These clones have been soldiers fighting for that army their entire lives and are now being forced to not only reckon with Order 66 and whether they do it or not, but what they do after that, which is something that ultimately determines not only what side of the war they're fighting on, but who they are. Like now they're being forced with the choice of you're more than a clone. You have to make a moral conscious decision. And that to me is compelling. And that's borne out immediately in the conflict between Hunter and Crosshair. So early goings, there is a lot of the sort of stripped down on the ground, bare bonesness of Rogue One and of the Star Wars universe that I really like. 
Now I want to do the negatives because I think we are two sides of the same coin. And I think there's a larger theme to draw, which I'll get to at the end of this. I want to put this out there. I liked the first two episodes that were provided to media of The Bad Batch. I'm going to continue watching the show. I don't want people all up in my mentions being like, you're such a fucking hater, bro. Because nobody hates Star Wars more than Star Wars fans. It's crazy. But for me personally, what draws me into Star Wars, what I love most about the franchise is the dueling fates of destiny and power. I really like the galactic conflict of the Jedi versus the Sith and the immense stakes that he accompany that conflict. I love the philosophical force-driven power of the Jedi. I love the tens of thousands of, of years of history behind the Jedi, or, Jedi Order. And I love the counterbalance that is the dark side, how they evolved into different sects and what they both represent and are striving for is fascinating to me. I have never much cared about the clone troopers in any medium. And respectfully, I've often found the episodes dedicated to them to be the weakest of the clone wars. And, you know, some of the returns with Captain Rex in the rebels, I I just am not as engaged and compelled by them. Uh, To me, clone troopers and here specifically the bad batch are comparatively small stakes and less integral to the universe spanning narrative that I prefer. And I find them to be less dynamic characters than their kind of Jedi Sith counterparts as well. They're more here in the Bad Batch single trait archetypes than full deep dive souls. And that could change over the course of 16 episodes, of course. And I'm not closing my mind off to that possibility. But they're not my priority. They're not my first choice. But Eric, the whole reason I wanted to do this positive versus negatives is because what I find illuminating is how our two viewpoints serve as kind of a microcosm for the Star Wars fandom and focus as a whole. Just like you and I have divided the MCU into the mystical, the multiverse, and the cosmic, and we'll speak on that more in our next segment, we can also break down Star Wars into the mythological and the pragmatic. I think for the pragmatic, you can put the Mandalorian, Rogue One, Solo, the Bad Batch, and also make an argument for elements of the prequels and elements of the animated Clone Wars to belong in that section. For the mythological, I think you can put the original trilogy, the sequel trilogy, again, elements of the prequel trilogy, elements of the Clone Wars, and Rebels to close it out. And I think whichever one you enjoy most, there's no wrong answer, of course, But that is a bit how the Star Wars fandom and its franchise building focus has been divided and followed up on over the last X amount of years. But I think it's important to point out that these are our thoughts after seeing two episodes of a 16 episode first season. I did caveat that. Yeah, so there's a long way to go. You know, I think an important factor in why I'm able to consume this and I'm not so much Clone Wars is because it's unfolding real time, right? I only have to watch one a week. Where like the scope and scale of tackling Clone Wars is so intimidating at this point that... So will I follow up week to week? For sure. Are we going to dive deep into this series every week on this show? I don't think so, but... Hey, they may drop a, and not this big, but a Baby Yoda-esque bomb at some point where it's like, oh, fuck, the Bad Batch is a big deal now. 
We got to talk about it. You know, you can't rule that out from them at this point. So I think it's a promising start. I think the pilot, you weren't as as high on it as I was, but 70 minutes. That's a commitment on, right there. Based on what I've seen from the Clone Wars series so far, that first 20 minutes is as harrowing of content as, as they've ever put out there. That was a great which, opening. Which suggests to me that they are making this series a little more adult-friendly. Even though plenty of adults enjoy Clone Wars, I think that they are consciously aware of the fact that probably more adults watch Clone Wars than kids. You know, I would imagine they have more... 16 plus viewers than they do 16 and younger viewers that's my total guess so hopefully they are building a show that reflects that and so far that's the vibe that i've gotten and zooming out i just think there's value also in identifying and acknowledging the strategic development of where these corners of Star Wars fit, you know, is it the pragmatic boots on the ground? Is it the mythological kind of universe spanning uh, Jedi Sith type territory? And how that also appeals to certain segments of the fan fandom, you know? So I'm sure there are roughly 50-50 that are like, oh yeah, I agree with Brandon. I like the the, the force uh, philo- philosophical debates. And or I agree with Eric. I I like- don't li- and that's not to say that oh, I yeah. don't. It's like not oppositional. It, it's just what I, draws your eye more. Yeah, I just think that in terms of, you know, I've seen the Jedi story over and over at this point. What compels me are the people, you know, actually living fucking through it, right? <laughs> Jedi can literally control people with their brain. I want you to do X, so do I. And that, while dope, is unrelatable as fuck. Being a soldier, like, do I want to join the empire that's clearly in control but also very evil or do i want to do the right thing but also potentially risk my life that's a compelling choice see to me i find the jedi relatable because they are just like any other superhero force you know what would i do with power how would i wield that and how would i try to influence events that do affect the more boots on the ground people that you're talking about and i think one of my other criticisms or not criticism a complaint of the Bad Batch is it? it is yet another project that is set within the same constrained 60-year period that we have been in since the 1970s. You know, all of Star Wars stories take place in this relatively finite, cramped timeline when there is 25,000 years of history to explore. So that is also one reason why I am over the moon excited for Acolytes, the upcoming Disney Plus series, because that's going to take place, I think, a couple thousand years in the past, I believe. Right. It's stunning that it's taken them this long to do that, too. No, it's crazy. But all right, we, we did Star Wars. Let's hop over to the other big franchise of the moment, and that is Marvel. In their hype video, they released not only footage, but release dates for it, for basically a handful of their Phase 4 films. I just want to quickly, and I know it's a lot, but quickly run through the 22 projects that are currently set for some sort of release in phase four. You ready for this? Loki, June 9. Black Widow, July 9. What If, mid-2021. Shang-Chi, September 3. Eternals, November 5th. Miss Marvel, late 2021. Hawkeye, late 2021. Spider-Man, No Way Home, December 17th. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, March 25th, 2022. Thor, Love and Thunder, May 6th, 2022. Moon Knight, 2022. She-Hulk, 2022. Black Panther, Wakanda Favre, July 8th, 2022. The Marvels, November 11th, 2022. 
Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, late 2022. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, February 17th, 2023. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, May 5th, 2023. Fantastic Four, to be determined, but Disney confirmed it's a phase four film in their press release. Secret Invasion, to be determined. Ironheart, to be determined. Armor Wars, to be determined. Untitled Wakanda series, to be determined. And then while these two have not been officially included in phase four, it's a possibility they are. And whether or not they are, they are uh, one of the most recently talked about and reported projects. That is Blade, which begins production in July, 2022, could potentially be the phase five launching pad and Captain America 4, which is to be determined. Eric, that's a lot of projects. That is a lot of projects. So to focus our conversation, I want to ask you a few questions. To start off, of those, which three projects do you think will be the most important for the MCU in terms of far-ranging and long-term in-universe ramifications, and why? So uh, number one, I feel like it's obvious, and that is Eternals. Just because of the cosmic, celestial, 7,000-year spanning scale. That alone, the fact that we're going to see the MCU at its origin, at its dawn, at its Big Bang, is inherently influential, important. Uh, It also helps that it's coming from an Academy Award-winning director. That is... Shout out, Chloe Zhao! This is a junk fact here, but is that a first for the MCU? It wouldn't surprise me. Correct. It is? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. See, that's why junk facts are great. Sometimes they're real. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm cheating here a bit, but I'm going, I'm going to combine No Way Home and Quantumania because they'll both be adding these behemoth, fantastical elements, the multiverse and quantum realm, time travel, tiny city fuckery that are not only like thematic leaps but are also tangible storytelling devices that will change the type of films the mcu can make you know no way home is going to be like the first of its kind and then finally and this is a low-key one but again pun intended to s no 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 not him uh you know to s my own d here i think that this would be one that most people wouldn't think of in terms of the question being asked is definitely the answer here. And that is secret invasion. Because I think that we'll get a sense of a, how involved the scrolls have been up until this point, B how involved they're going to be going forward or C both either way. We're going to get some sort of scroll-related reveal, i.e., oh, they've been here the whole time, or, oh, they're going to be here for the next 10 years. That is going to fundamentally change the way that we see and consume the MCU. That's definitely an under-the-radar solid answer right there. And I'm curious, of the characters we know, which one has been a scroll the whole time? Well, but do we even think they'll go down that road? I do, yeah. Oh, see, I'm not sure they will. Because that would be so fucking... That's like Pandora's box, right? Like, once they open that door... Someone's going to be a scroll. Okay, fair enough. Uh, for me, I'm also going with Eternals because it's kind of the intersection of Celestials, Deviants, and the new race, which is the Eternal. So, cosmic origins to superior beings across the universe 
and now Eternals, who have, again, 7,000 years, have probably in some way, shape, or form shaped the history of Earth at major uh, points. So I think that's going to be important. I'm going with No Way Home because of the multiverse shenanigans that are going to bend and reshape our understanding of the MCU scope, likely further set up Doctor Strange 2, and potentially, which would be very unfortunate, it's potentially Tom Holland's swan song as Peter Parker within the MCU because there are rumors or whispers that he could be reclaimed by Sony exclusively after this movie, which would also lend credence to the title, the cheeky title, No Way Home, because now he belongs to Sony and not Marvel. Yeah, and- when when that news first dropped, I, I put out a tweet of Jaden Smith in Karate Kid, and it was when Tom Holland wakes up in the, whatever, Sony universe of Marvel characters, and he's like, I hate it here. I want to <laughs> go home. <laughs> I mean, it's 100% accurate because his movies are going to get a lot shittier, most likely. 100%, dude. Venom sucks. Venom's bad, and Morbius looks terrible. Right. Fuck Jared Leto. Like, am I going to see Venom 2? Like, of course. Do I think it could be better because it went through a creative shakeup and all that? Of course. But so far, no. Right, yeah. And number three for me is Thor Love and uh, Thunder. Natalie Portman is assuming the mantle of Mighty Thor and, in my opinion, will likely get a set of franchise films of her own. Whether or not that means the end of Chris Hemsworth in the MCU, I don't know. But I do think Natalie Portman's Jane Foster Mighty Thor will be like a centerpiece, and I absolutely think she'll get her own sequels and everything moving forward. So that reshapes the hierarchy. What her deal is? Did she sign a three-film deal or we don't know. Okay. okay. But that's what that's what I'm getting. It seems like she's back on board. Yeah. I mean, I think Taika Watiti does that. They're like, hey, I have an idea. I know you hated your time here because you were underutilized. I have an idea to change that. And she's like, fuck yeah. Yeah. All right, question number two. So we had the same two. Um, but then you went with Thor because they're passing the mantle of Thor, which is a big deal for sure. So second question, and I'm seeing on our notes that we have a lot of overlap here. Oh, that's boring. Well, you know, maybe different reasons. Which three projects are you most looking forward to personally and why? Uh, Eternals again, and this should come as no surprise to fans of this show. I am a sucker for romantic sci-fi, right? (laughs) Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind is literally my favorite movie of all time. Looper, Ben Button, Blade Runner 2049, Interstellar, Guardians of the Galaxy 1. I even think Cloud Atlas is pretty damn good. I can't agree with you on that that last one. No, but those first five. um, Fuego. Eternal Sunshine, Looper, Ben Button, Blade Runner, Interstellar, Guardians 1. That's not me doing a shtick. I bring those films up on this show a lot. <laughs> like those are legitimately movies that I love. So that's sort of romantic sci-fi, the idea of a love story, which from what I've heard, the romance between Gemma Chan's Cersei and Kit Harrington's uh, Black Knight. Black Knight. And it's like Dane something, Kit Harrington. And I do want to just quickly say, in season one of Game of Thrones, Rob Stark said, the next time I'll see you, you'll be in black. And then they never see each other again in Game of Thrones. And now they'll see each other. Wait, in- see who? Wait, Gemma Chan's in Thrones? No, 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 no. Rob Stark in Game of Thrones. 
says, the next time I'll see you to Jon Snow, you'll be I know black. exactly what you're talking about. They, ne- they never see each other again. Now they will see each other and Jon Snow will be playing the Black Knight. That's fucking wild. I know, it's just a, I know that's just a stupid coincidence, but it's cool. Well, I put out a tweet this week. I was like, oh my God, I didn't even realize Marvel didn't even put Kit Harrington in that teaser. So it was like, hey, everyone, remember Jon Snow? Guess what? We've got him now and he's in our fucking movie. Point being is, I've heard that the romance between Gemma Chan's Cersei and Kit Harrington's Dane Whitman slash Black Knight is going to serve as the emotional core of this film, right? So again, the idea of a love story set across the grandness of time and space and multiple lives is just so right up my fucking alley. I can't even begin to describe it to you. And again, and the fact that Chloe Zhao is one of the most talented filmmakers in the world right now. Uh, I just love that you're a big softie at heart. (laughs) <laughs> I know my dumb jokes and rough exterior may not give that up, but um, number two for me, Moon Knight. Uh, this gives the MCU the sort of Batman-esque, is this guy fucking crazy? Operates in the gray spaces, A-list hero that they've needed for some time. And based on the training clips that we've seen, looks like it's going to be pretty gnarly, pretty hand-to-hand, pretty bloody. Uh, and then this third one was tough. I'm obviously intrigued by No Way Home, especially if all the rumors are true. I'm obviously hyped on Doctor Strange too, because I've long said I think that Doctor Strange is the MVP of the Thanos battle, and I find his powers and to just be compelling, even though I'm still mad at him for being a lazy fuck. Obviously, I'm sure Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and Fantastic Four are going to be sick, but I'm going with Thor, Love, and Thunder, and that's because you take Watiti's already successful style that made Ragnarok one of the MCU's best films. Add in the fact that not only is Thor becoming the first MCU character to get his own fourth solo film, and then yeah, solo film. Thor. No, I'm saying I'm like, can we call it a forkwell, or is that just too? Quadrant. I don't know. Yeah, well, quadrant's good. I like that. Um. So not only. Is he the first MCU hero to get his own fourth film? It could be his swan song, right? It could be the last time that we see Thor. But you add in the fact that they're adding two Academy Award winners and the Guardians of the Galaxy? What the fuck? I mean, that is such a cocktail for success. It's unbelievable. I, You know, this film has a chance to... And because it's going to be so aggressively sci-fi, I don't think it will get the respect it deserves in the film community at large. But I think that this, like this film has the chance to push beyond the boundaries of being a excellent MCU film and just be an excellent movie period up there with the Logans and the dark Knights, where they break out of their genre into the genre of drama or sci-fi at large. I have a subset question for you now. How much fun do you think Christian Bale is going to have doing cocaine and then walking onto set to ham it up as the villain? I was going to say most fun. I was going to say I didn't know he knew how to have fun, but but the cocaine thing makes sense. Yes, he's, a- listen, he's playing a character named Gore the God Butcher. There is no way he's not doing cocaine in his trailer and being like, "All right, let's action, let's." And set. you have a great theory about what his character might do to Russell Crowe's Zeus, which I think would be very cool. Yeah, so I mean, Russell Crowe said he was playing Zeus. 
I don't think you have someone playing Gore the God Butcher unless he fucking butchers some gods. So Russell Crowe, who seems like a pretty chill dude overall. I mean, you know, back in the day, he had some anger management issues, but he seems like a guy who's like, I'm just ready to have fun. Hey, Russell, would you come do three days on set where you have like a, a great entrance and then you get killed by Christian Bale? But all right, my, that sounds fun. Yeah, like some sure. bullshit like that. I think that'd be great. Um, Eric, I had the same three as you, so I will. No way! Are you serious? Yes, I have the same oh, exact. Oh, dude, three. we stink, man. We I, stink. I, or we just have good taste. I don't know what to tell you, but I'll keep my explanation okay. short. As a result, uh, number one, Eternals, new characters, very interesting. After roughly twelve years of, of the same faces, uh, also this is going to span seven thousand years, so it's going to exist beyond the same eighty-year timeline, World War One to present, that the current MCU has done. So I'm excited about that. Uh, number two, Moon, Moon Knight. Gonzo character. That's awesome. That's a, a flavor we don't really have in the MCU. And Oscar Isaac is probably now a top three actor in the MCU. Something like that. So that's great. And then Thor Love and Thunder. Because a lot of what you just said, Taiki Watiti, Taiko Watiti has, for me personally, reached Christopher Nolan, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino status in the sense that I'll see anything he makes or anything his name is attached to done. Yeah. And I, uh, not to cut you off, but here's how impactful I think he's been to Thor. The first two Thors are thought of, of consensus bottom four, bottom three MCU films. Thor, the dark world has a case for the, for being the worst MCU film. Ragnarok is like consensus top five. five. So that's the, that's the difference that we're talking about here. And then honorable mentions, I would just throw out What If, which I'm really excited for, Wakanda Forever, and uh, In the Multiverse of Madness. So, you know. Yeah, plus the factor of not only Sam Raimi coming back, but yeah, be cool. the residual effects of No Way From Home. As I've said on this show, who's to say Spider-Man won't appear in that movie, you know? so It would um, make sense if Toby did. That would have been my, that, that was my 3A. All right, last question. If you could make one change to the upcoming Phase 4 slate, what would it be and why? All right, I think this is sort of a hot take. I don't know if you've seen my notes, so I don't know if this is going to be a shock to you. I'm sure most people won't be thrilled on this, but what I would do is I would delay Fantastic Four and introduce the Fantastic Four corner of the MCU through a Doctor Doom film. Okay. Because if there was ever a character in a time, I mean, and I think what stands out about MCU Space 4 is how eclectic it is. You know, this was a franchise that turned C-listers into A-listers. By cause and effect, their former... Now they're going through the D and E listers, but because of the status of the franchise and the actors that they've gotten to play these roles, these are A and B projects now. So if there was a character and a time for the MCU to make its first proper anti-hero villain, you know, sort of Joker, not like Joker, but in terms of putting a more serious Loki, putting, putting, right. Putting the spotlight on the bad guy. There was ever a fucking time to do it. It's Dr. Doom. Now, friendly amendment, can it be Noah Hawley's project that was shelved when Fox got bought Trust by me, Disney? We both love our, our boy, but I'm not sure the tone and vibe he brings would fit into the MCU. He could work with Feige to reshape it. Come oh, on. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, that's fine. 
that, I that's fine. It. I thought you meant just like as is straight up. I, like I mean, I'm just, I, I couldn't believe that Vaggy would ever be like, yeah, sure. You know, he would have to tweak it. But, you know, I would love a Doctor Doom film one day. Do I ever think we get it? I don't know. But that would be the way that I would do it. I like that. Uh, for me, I would might I maybe would delay Moon Knight, which is blasphemy, I know, because you and I are hyped for it. Yeah. But I, I wanted to more closely connect and set up Blade because Moon Knight does cross paths with Dracula's and whatnot in his uh, stories. To me, vampires are going to be a, a difficult thing to explain because if you're having Blade, that means vampires are prevalent. They're not just like, oh, like, this weird rat rabies is, is popping up. No, they're going to be like a few sh- full on subculture. So to explain that in universe after all this time is going to be tricky. As much as I want to see Moon Knight, Eric, and as much as I think projects should be focused on telling good stories over setting up future adventures, which is what I think partially felled Batman v Superman. I wouldn't mind some breadcrumb connections right here. I think those two properties can work in tandem well. So now that we've run through all of those, I think there are some major phase four Marvel takeaways we can form, Eric. And I think they help a little bit like what we were talking about with Star Wars before. They help identify and acknowledge the segments that Marvel is building. And, you know, as a fan, you can be like, oh, I'm attracted to this or this catches my eye. So to me, number one, Marvel has reached a point where even so-called standalone films are crossover team over events. I mean, you've got... Doctor Strange 2, which is going to feature uh, Wanda. You've got Spider-Man, which, you know, is rumored to feature a ton of multiverse elements, including other Spider-Men. You've got the Marvels, which is going to be Miss Marvel and Tayona Paris's Monica Rambeau. So even standalones have now become like crossover events. So what I'm seeing, too, as we run through this list and discuss it, Phase four to me is broken up into certain quadrants, to borrow your word again and repurpose it. We got time travel wonkery in Loki. We've got time spanning history in Eternals. We've got alternative timelines in What If. We've got multiverse shenanigans in Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. We've got dimension hopping in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. We've got mysticism with Shang-Chi. We've got cosmic elements, Thor, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Secret Invasions, the Marvels, maybe... And then we've got slightly more earthbound stories. So like Black Widow, Miss Marvel, Hawkeye, She-Hulk, Black Panther, Armor Wars, Ironheart, and the Wakanda series. That to me is, is a cool collection of vibes, tones, ambitions. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that is the MCU's strength right now, yeah. right? That, and you're going to get to this, the too big fail thing. And do they risk over saturating the market and you make a great point how no franchise has stayed on top for this long what you're discounting is the mcu isn't really one franchise that's the difference whereas like die hard right it was about <laughs> bruce willis every movie that's not the case here so every time they put out something new that something new opens the door to something else so it's ever evolving and now it's gotten to the point in its post end game life where similar to comics it's a living breathing universe you know back in the day the mcu felt linear you're going from film a to film b to film c to C- to film d and they all feel like they're unfolding concurrently now it feels more like a web like a tree of life right there's all these different things happening in all these different corners and you could choose to engage 
with all of them, or you could choose to engage with some of them, or you could just watch that one show that you think is cool. So while we may not be dealing with the same, it's like, all right, do you prefer a hitter who hits for power or <laughs> who hits for yeah. average? Different the, qualities and traits. The Captain Americas and the Iron Mans and the Spider-Mans, those are home run swings. These are A-list characters. But, you know, stuff like Hawkeye and Moon Knight and She-Hulk, these are like singles and doubles, which score your runs. And it's all offense and it's all moving the game forward. So I think that it's eclecticness and wide rangingness is currently its primary strength. A great answer to what was going to be my next question about how much Marvel is too much Marvel. You know, is the brand too big to fail or does it run the risk of oversaturating the market? Because by the end of 2021, Marvel will have released four films and six TV series. In 2022, what they have confirmed right now is four films and three Disney Plus projects, which will ultimately probably be closer to five or six Disney Plus projects when all is said and done. And we've got confirmed two movies in 2023 and likely much more Disney Plus series. So like like you mentioned, and like I said, no franchise, no, no fad or phenomenon or trend in Hollywood history has stayed dominant and in demand and at top quality forever. So to me, if by the end of phase four, Marvel has maintained or even built momentum, then Kevin Feige is in full-on legacy mode. He is full-on Hall of Fame status. And you don't think he's there undis- already? No, I do think he's there already. But to continue this long with this many multimedia projects, it's unheard of and unprecedented. And and the MCU is already the single most consistently successful Hollywood creation in entertainment history, bar none. So, but then where do you fall on that? Do you think there is such a thing as too much? I do. And I I, I think there is a finite point at some trajectory in the future. But I think given how many new areas of the cosmos, the mysticism. And they haven't even touched on the mutants yet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Given, so given that, given the new characters we're going to see in phase four, given the fact that they just got awesome IP from Fox, including X-Men and uh, Deadpool, I don't think the slowdown comes in phase four. And I would also like to say the Infinity Saga is the biggest franchise culmination in Hollywood history. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. So- In a way, you could argue, despite the lost revenue and all that, the pandemic was a little bit of a blessing in disguise. The pandemic was horrible. Human life was lost. Jobs were lost. I'm not saying that. But after the biggest Hollywood event ever, we had essentially 24 months where we could just calm down. Yeah, recalibrate our expectations. You know, get away from Marvel. So at the point when WandaVision premiered, we were like, holy shit, we are itching for some motherfucking Marvel. The whole world is like now very hungry for additional Marvel content. Whereas if they had continued as expected, as scheduled, perhaps that demand wouldn't be as rabid as it is right now. That's a great point. Great point. I do not think phase four is the slowdown phase. Let's, Let's reconvene at phase five. I don't know, dude. I think Phase Five could be bigger because then we're talking about Young Avengers. I hope so. Mutants, Thunderbolts, Secret Wars. So you know, I think I, I think Phase Four is going to be the chill one. To be honest with you. So do you think you know Marvel just continues ad infinitum? I might be pronouncing that wrong. 
as as a dominant franchise, or do you think there's ever a slowdown period? Because I do think eventually there is going to be a I slowdown period. I think the only way that the MCU collapse is if the genre itself does. Like the superhero but, bubble pops. Correct. But for as long as the genre and the market remains viable, the MCU will always exceed and excel, for sure. And that said, like, you know, there's going to, in like 10 years, Iron Man is being rebooted, you know? Definitely. So, so it, it, there's too much ending. money to be made for Marvel not to reboot the, the A-list characters. There's a very real chance that the movie industry we know, as we know it, collapses before the MCU does. <laughs> and as an unintended parallel to the bubble that is superheroes our next topic is still superhero related even if it's not marvel great interview with josh dumel who is the star of the upcoming jupiter's legacy on netflix from mark millar who created you know kick ass and kingsman and, and a lot of other comics you guys let like. me tell you and i tell this to josh uh i think he does some great work in this i think he's doing some legit dramatic work which for a superhero show that, you know, I, I ask him, how does this stand out? I think the performance that he gives is definitely unique in the superhero space up until this point. Hi, Eric. Josh, what's up, man? It's an honor. How uh, are you today? Nice to meet you good to meet you as well i don't have much time with you today unfortunately so i want to get right okay. into the important stuff okay. um has anyone ever seen you and timothy oliphant in the same room <laughs> you want to hear a great story i would love to that's why i'm so here a couple years ago i was at a fundraiser for clayton kershaw a pitcher for the dodgers does this ping pong tournament at dodger stadium on the field and they had a they had a, a, a like a like a blue carpet thing where there's some media there, and I talked to like the guy from the LA Times. And for the first for about ten minutes, I sat and talked to him. And at the end of it, he said, "So, um, did you have fun playing so and so on Justified?" I was like, "Wait, you think I'm Timothy Oliphant? I'm not. I'm just, my name is Josh." He's like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." So I go inside to this event, and. Who shows up to the event is Timothy Oliphant. And we hadn't met, but we've been hearing for years that we looked alike. And I, I agree. And so it was fun for both of us to just sort of hang out and, and laugh about it. And then towards the end of it, he goes like, hey, come here, take a picture with my family. So he takes the camera and I sitting there with his family. You know, he's got like, I think, four kids and we're all sitting there. We take this photo. We'll come Christmas time about six years, six months later. I get a Christmas card from the Oliphants with me on the card saying, Merry Christmas, the happy holidays, the Oliphants. <laughs> so I take it I'm, I'm not the first one to make that terrible joke. No, but I mean, how cool is it that he put me on his on his uh, on his awesome. And look, man, there are there are worse guys to be confused with than him. No, he's a great dude. He's a great actor. Um, as, as are you, sir. So let's get right to it. Um, the superhero genre is, let's call it, quite crowded these days. Um, how do you feel like your show here stands out from the pack? Well, I think that it's it's it's. You're right. There is a lot of stuff out there in this in this genre for sure. Um, and I wasn't necessarily looking to do anything for that reason, but I read the script and I was like, wow, this is really more a family drama 
about this dysfunctional family of superheroes than anything. It's really about the the, the family dysfunction and yeah. and inter, interrelationships of that than anything. And that's really what I think separates it. It's got this. There's a saga feeling about it because we've got the 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 origin story it goes back 90 years, and we sort of see what 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 how that has affected them 90 years later and and and, and how he now, was that an appeal to you to try to, to to sort of be playing two different versions of the same character it was it was a chance for me to play the same guy but really two different guys because you know in a guy in his 30s and then a guy 90 years later and what do those two guys look like especially with this kind of responsibility and pressure you know and this is a genre that people don't usually bring up when they bring up legitimate dramatic work I think you're doing some great stuff here, Josh. I mean, the 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 sort of, as you just pointed out, the family drama is the core of the show. And a lot of that is on you. I really enjoyed sort of your role and what you're describing there. Another main theme of this season one is Sheldon's strict moral code, which includes no killing, even if it could be argued that killing could be the right thing sometimes. Yeah. How do you, Josh, feel about his moral code and how did that inform, like, how do you personally feel about that? And how did you inform, and how did that inform how you played him? Eric, if I could tell you how many conversations we had about this code, I, I mean, it, it, was, it was unbelievable because for, I could not wrap my head around that very thing. Like, okay, yes, I understand. Nobody wants to kill anybody. I'm not looking to kill anybody, but if somebody's trying to take out somebody that I love, I'm taking them out first. I don't care. But Sheldon is so strict and rigid about this code that it makes me wonder, like I really had to wrap my head around why that was. And I have some real theories about it. I don't want to talk about because I'm hoping they'll use it in the next season. But the, the idea that he wouldn't kill no matter what makes me wonder, you know, even if even if somebody's about to kill him, he'd rather his them not kill, even if it's going to save his life. Which makes me wonder, is he is he just is this like a sins of the father where he's sort of trying it's a cyclical thing where he watched his father die and now he's maybe inadvertently gonna make his son watch him die in front of him? There's like almost like he's got this death wish, which is really well, kind of I kinda hard. I kind of see his point because he sort of sees it as like a North Star, right? He's he sees it as when all else fails, you could rely on this code. Yes. And from that point of view, I do get it. Um that's not saying I agree with it, but I get yeah. it. Yeah, uh, now I'm on the same page as you are. It's like I get that that there's there's got to be there's got to be a north star. There's got to be a back a tether. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So your dad, um, how would you feel if your son did what Paragon does at the end of episode one, especially considering the context of in the moment and Sheldon's own failures to save his own father, Josh, Josh, my son, my son Axel. Correct. Oh, like you in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, I would, this, this whole thing has been a cautionary tale for me in a lot of ways. I'm not going to lie, like watching and sort of living out this character and, and seeing what, 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 what the repercussions of being sort of an absent father can, can look like. Uh, and as aspirational and ambitious as I am, the last thing I want to do is look back on my life and realize that I, I wasn't there for my kid. Um, and I think that I would I would probably be a little bit more lenient than I think Sheldon was. I think he's the expectations he puts on his son is are, are unreachable, and and I think that he's starting to realize that you know what I fucked up as a father. 
I need to figure out how I can make this right. And, and for me as Josh with my son, I think that I'm trying to do everything that I can to make sure that my son knows that he can count on me to be there always, you know, right. and I don't want to look back <coughs> when I'm 80 years old and be like lonely and wishing I'd have had a better relationship with my kids. Right, right, right. This is your craft, so it's kind of an odd thing to ask, but which did you find more difficult for you personally to do? Um, acting as a superhero, which is a very otherworldly thing. It's like flying, right? Like, how do I pretend that I know how to fly? Or did you find it harder to act as if you were talking to giant robots as you did in Transformers? Which for you was the sort of harder task to come off as genuinely believable? This was harder. This was harder because in the Transformers movies, we had gunfire and bombs going off and it felt like you were actually in a war. You felt like you were in it. This, you're trying to portray this dude who's much older and much, he has these powers that, that, that we can't even imagine would feel like. Um, and also you're, it's all green screen on the big battle scene and you're up there on these tethered ropes and you're trying to do it, it. It takes more work to make that look real and believable than it did on anything I did in Transformers. How do you sort of ground yourself in that though? What are you coming from it from the point of view? Is it like, are you using your experiences as a dad to inform how you play Sheldon? How are you sort of getting yourself in the headspace of such a extreme larger than life character? Well, I think at the end of the day, he's, he's still a human being. That's, that's really what I thought, what I, the way I looked at it. He's a guy who, you know, unlike Superman or any there's various other superheroes who were born with this stuff, uh, don't know what it's like to feel human. And he, it wasn't until he was 30 something years old that they actually gained these powers. So I think that there's, there's a human relatability to him that I, that I, that at the end of the day, I just went back to that. That's really what he is. And I think that, that's what's going to resonate. I don't want him to feel like this, this untouchable sort of godlike thing that, that, that nobody can relate to. At the end of the day, he's just a guy. Well, I think that's the strength of you playing him, despite the crazy costume and the white hair and the wild look. You know, I buy it. Awesome show. Awesome work, Josh. I thank you for your time. I also can't wait to see you as Harvey Dent in the long Halloween this fall. I'm excited <laughs> for that. Great stuff, sir. Appreciate oh, you. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate you, man. Take care. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, that'll do it for us on the Postgred Pod. Eric, this was a damn good, solid, sick episode. It feels good to be back. I needed to not hear my fucking voice for just a nice two weeks. It, it, you know, hearing yourself talk about... yeah about stuff gets tiring after a while but it felt great being back great show i am so excited to talk to y'all next week for the zach snyder interview stay tuned follow us at postcred pod on twitter leave us some five-star reviews on apple podcasts and the like yeah, seriously, what 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 more do we need to do we're bringing you zach snyder leave us a fucking review Seriously, it actually really does help with our SEO. So, like, I'm yeah. actually genuinely yeah. asking you Damn, to please or, do so. You're going to catch these hands sooner or later. <laughs> you catch these digital hands, man. You want the smoke? You don't want this. Yeah. All right, y'all. Peace. Until next week. Talk to you later. Peace. I'm going to make him an offer, guys.
My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 